We can turn our Bibles to Titus. We finished up 2 Timothy last week. We went through 1 Timothy before that, and then Titus will wrap up our little study of the pastoral epistles. So we're going to get through about half of this book this morning, and then we'll try to finish up the next half next week. First, a little bit of intro. Who is this guy named Titus? Okay, this epistle was written by Paul to a man named Titus. We know from Galatians 2, 1 through 3, that Titus was a Greek. Okay, he was not a Jew as Paul was. So Titus was Greek. He was also accompanying Paul on several of his uh, missionary journeys to Corinth. We know he was with him at Ephesus. And it is interesting that Titus was not named by name in the book of Acts. We don't have the name of Titus anywhere in there. But we do know that he was with Paul at Ephesus. And here he was sent by the Apostle Paul to Corinth. Um, His mission in going to Corinth was to see if the first letter that Paul had written to the Corinthians had taken any effect in the church there. He also ended up becoming the bearer of the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians, what we have today. It does say in 2 Corinthians that Titus took this upon himself. It was of his own accord. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 16, 17, and 23. And in that epistle, 2 Corinthians, Paul calls Titus his fellow worker concerning you, talking to the Corinthians. Uh, Apparently, Titus was very close to Paul. Uh, We know that he accompanied him several times, and so I'm sure they would have gotten to know each other fairly well. And at the time that Paul wrote this letter to Titus, Titus was already in Crete, tending to the churches there. Crete was a small island just south of Greece. Um, It wouldn't have been very far from Corinth. And it is reasonable to think that maybe sometime while Titus was in Corinth, ministering to those people, that he would have taken a little boat ride down to Crete and visited the Cretans. Now, He did fall in love with the Corinthians while he was in Corinth, um, and I believe that probably played into why he wanted to go back and deliver Paul's second letter to them. Um, It does not say that he fell in love with the Cretans. Um, Actually, the Cretans were a bit difficult to work with, and we'll see some more on that in just a little bit. So Titus was already in Crete, tending to the churches there, when Paul writes this letter to him, okay? This would be after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome and shortly before his second, around 67 AD, when this was written. That about 10 years after the last mention of Titus in uh, 2 Corinthians. So that would be about AD 57. Titus's journey to Dalmatia, which we just mentioned in the very end of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 10, came after the writing of this epistle. So I say all of that to say this. This is the order in which Paul writes these pastoral epistles. It goes 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. Okay, so right here, 
we are seeing Paul writing before he writes 2 Timothy. We know that Paul the Apostle wrote this to Titus, and Titus was charged with staying in Crete to oversee the pastors there. Titus was not himself a pastor. He was an overseer of the pastors in Crete. Uh, More of a liaison between Paul in his absence and the Cretans. Paul also writes to Titus to tell him what a church should look like on the inside. Okay, we have a lot of the same instructions that he gave to Timothy. He's giving now to Titus. After Paul left Crete, as we can imagine with the Cretans, uh, it didn't take long for trouble to arise in that church. The Cretans were famous for being a misbehaving bunch, and there was... Uh, there's no doubt that they were difficult to work with. Um, you think it's bad here? That that place was on a different level. I mean, seriously. In fact, they had a little epithet, a little saying coined after the Cretans. Uh, it's to Cretanize is to lie. So that tells you a little bit about their culture. Throughout this whole letter... Paul is going to address some things that I think we would do well to heed ourselves. He's going to talk about legalism, uh, still alive today, idle babbling, you know, ramblings that aren't really useful for, for anyone, and practical ungodliness, just general ungodliness. And he's going to make several mentions of living right, specifically in the context of walking how you talk. Okay, we we shouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers. He's going to specifically address that issue several times. We know that uh, Titus had already received this instruction from Paul before he went to Crete. Now Paul is following up with him in this letter, seeing how things are going and reinforcing some things that he had already told Titus. We have seen a lot of these same instructions given to Timothy, so we are going to kind of move through these pretty swiftly, Um, and we are going to stir you up by way of reminder this morning. So starting in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So he starts off, Paul, you know, I am who is writing to you, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Interesting here that he places bondservant before apostle. I would think if I was an apostle, I wouldn't want that to go first in my title, not bondservant, right? But truly, we have to become a slave of Christ before anything else. You have to turn yourself over to him. Let him take charge. So a bondservant before an apostle, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In hope of eternal life, 
This is the blessed assurance that we have as Christians, as children of God. It's the life with our creator forever in hope of eternal life. And you see, this hope is not like hope in the world. We're not crossing our fingers and hoping that this happens. We are earnestly awaiting it. We are looking forward to this happening because it was promised by God. It's not promised by me. You know, that wouldn't stand for much. But it is promised by God who cannot lie. And he promised it before time began. Eternal here is aeonios in the Greek. It means without end, never to cease, and everlasting. Life is zoe. This word, zoe, speaks not only of life, as we would generally think of it, but it also speaks of quality of life. See, we're not just going to be perched up on a cloud strumming a harp for eternity. There is a quality of life to this everlasting life that we have with the Father. There are uh, different ways that you can take this word zoe. You have life, real and genuine, and a life active and vigorous. Okay? Not only do we have eternal life as children of God, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, but it's going to be real and genuine, active and vigorous, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. I can't quite wrap my head around that, but it does fall in the same line with other scriptures that we see. Okay, before time began. And in contrast to the Cretans, to Cretanize, to lie, we know they're liars. In contrast to that, God cannot lie. He's not capable of it. He is the one who has promised us eternal life. And this is in accord with Revelation 13.8 and 1 Peter 1.20. These both say, and I'm paraphrasing here, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Again, it, this is outside of what we know as time and space. God, before creating time and space, purposed in his heart to redeem his creation. And he decided I am going to sacrifice my only son to save this creation, to redeem it back to the perfect state that it was before man brought sin into it. So God, purposing in his own heart to offer up his son as a sacrifice, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, also promises eternal life through that slain lamb. And that is what we're seeing right here in Titus. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Verse 4, to Titus. Now he's telling us who he's writing to. A true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace 
from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Titus, apparently, was in some way influenced by Paul to come to the faith. And we see that he calls us, uh, he calls Titus a true son in our common faith, similar to Timothy. It seems that Paul had a part in both of these young men's coming to salvation. A true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Again, Paul is opening with grace and peace, which he does many times in his epistles. But he adds something in this one and in his other two pastoral epistles. It's interesting and very fitting. He adds mercy. Um, Apparently, he knows that to be in ministry, you need heap loads of mercy too. Grace and peace for sure, but mercy is in there as well. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, many people love to call Jesus Savior. They do it for whatever reason, maybe fire insurance, just skating out of hell uh, by the, the skin of their teeth. But how many of us love to call him Lord of our life? Is he in that preeminent position where everything is built around him, off of him? We've talked about the cornerstone before. The cornerstone was set in place to guide every other stone off of its angles. Is Christ the cornerstone Lord of your life, as well as being Savior? Because he is that too. Just a little heart check for us this morning. In Luke six forty six, Jesus says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when the flood arose, The stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. I want to call to your attention something in this passage. Both men heard what Jesus was saying. One man did what Jesus said. They both heard, but only one of them did the sayings of Jesus. The difference was not in the hearing, but in the doing. So if you do profess Jesus as your Lord, you will obey his commands. And that is a firm foundation for your life. Moving on to verse 5, Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete. Okay, so this is why Paul has left Titus in Crete. It's to help maintain order and appoint elders. 
He says that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Lots of words there. It does stand out to me that this is very closely the same list that Paul gives Timothy uh, for qualifications of elders. Um, You can find that in 1 Timothy 3. Remember we were talking about the Cretans, Cretans, and we'll talk about them again. We've got a quote from a Cretan himself saying that they're liars, evil beasts, and (laughs) lazy people. But if God does not change his qualifications here for Titus, for finding these elders, he is not going to change his qualifications for us. Okay. And I, I say that, but truly, um, Timothy, he was involved at Ephesus. Paul gives him this list of qualifications from God, inspired. He also gives Titus the same list. Of qualifications. Titus was dealing with the Cretans, a much rowdier group. So why would we be able to bend or change any of these qualifications where we are today? God's word does not change. It's interesting. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Blameless is not sinless. That would disqualify all of us, myself included. Blameless is this idea of not having accusations stick to him. You ever wondered if your spaghetti is ready? You ever thrown it at the wall? If it sticks, it's supposed to be ready, right? If it falls off, it's not ready. Keep cooking it. Not that piece. All the rest. But that's kind of the idea of this. You throw something at him, these accusations, and because of his character that he's already demonstrated, these accusations don't stick. They fall off like spaghetti that's not ready to eat. Okay? So blameless, the husband of one wife, Now, this doesn't rule out single men from serving in the church, okay? The idea is that this man needs to be a one-woman kind of man. He needs to understand that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Um, And, of course, there are some concessions for divorce in some cases. Jesus said that adultery is cause for divorce. Now, if that can be redeemed, that's wonderful. Uh, but we're, we're talking about a one-woman kind of man here. Having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And that is, he rules his house well. 
he has his family in order. These qualifications through verse 9 can be summed up as being a man of character. Okay, and we've already gone through much of this in 1 Timothy. Skipping down to verse 9, he says, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. This brings back memories of Paul's exhortation to Timothy. To Timothy, he said, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. So the overseer must hold to what he has already been taught. Now the the big catch here is that he has to have already been taught these things. And that comes from important people in his life. Parents, Sunday school teachers, maybe school teachers, maybe some of those uh, titles cross barriers. Maybe somebody is both to this man. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, this is the end of holding fast to what you've been taught. You're able to teach others, and you're able to do so by sound doctrine. You can exhort, come alongside, comfort, encourage, uh, push along, and convict. This idea of convict is we're not sending anybody to jail. We're just refuting or correcting. That is the essence of this word convict. So by holding fast the faithful word, as this man has been taught, he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, to comfort and encourage, and to convict those who contradict. And that is contradict the sound doctrine. Even in the midst of this wicked culture, we see some things that we can take away. Now, our culture today is heading towards that direction as well. So let's pay close attention for how we're supposed to handle ourselves in the church and out of the church. Verse 10, he writes, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. He says there are many insubordinate. Insubordinate is just saying unruly, not put under any kind of rule, and that cannot be subjected to control. They're disobedient. There are many disobedient, both idle talkers and deceivers. Idle talkers and deceivers. He groups these two types of people together. Idle talkers who make up problems when there's not a problem, who uh, major in the minors. They're nitpicking little things that do not sway doctrine, that do not sway anything important in the church. They're just making talk. And we all know someone who can talk for hours and hours and not say anything. And (laughs) I have to say it, I'm sorry. If you don't know anyone like that, 
it's probably because it is you. But truly, we all know someone who can talk forever. Um, and there's nothing wrong with talking. But let's, let's make it encouraging. Let's make it uh, something that is of value. But there's also those who deceive. Idle talkers and deceivers. Now, deception we think of as much worse than just babbling on about anything. I do too. But it is interesting that Paul groups these two types of people together, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So he's talking about the Jews especially, but of course there are also Gentiles who would fit the bill of an idle talker or a deceiver. Uh, But at this point in history, the Jews were trying to heap up laws on the Christians, um, especially the converts who have come out of Judaism. Uh, They wanted those people to kind of hang on to the law, not fully come into what Christ had for them. Now, that is dangerous. Uh, we, We see it, and it is still dangerous today. But... Paul is warning Titus specifically about those of the circumcision, the Jews, okay, whose mouths must be stopped. I kind of like that phrase. Paul just doesn't really pull any punches. They just got to stop their mouths. Who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not. It is truly sad when you see someone come into a family or have an effect on a person that could have been avoided. Um, And, you know, so much can be lost to the deceivers, to the idle talkers, um, just taking your eye off of Christ. And that's really what it comes down to. If you maintain Christ as the preeminent leader, the Lord of your life, as we talked about, that is a compass. And that directs you. Um, When you let something else cloud your vision, when you let something come in between you and the prize, it takes your eyes off that prize and they're able to be distracted. So take much care. It is not only dangerous to us as individuals, but to your families. Teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. There are certainly people who teach things, deceptive things, purposefully, to get rich, get ahead, for gain. And this word gain is not just speaking of riches. It's talking about any worldly advantage. Okay, so so they're teaching these things to get ahead in life. However, though there are some who do it purposefully, there are some who do not do it purposely. There are some that are genuinely deceived by others. Now, for every guy who is 
genuinely deceived, you can trace it back to somebody who meant to deceive someone. Okay, so it's not that they are in the clear. No, they're still going to be held accountable. Um, but they may even deceive with good intentions. Okay, and we see it today. They're thinking that they are teaching sound doctrine when in fact they are not and they are deceiving households. Verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Some powerful words there. Paul says, this testimony is true. Now, I don't think that Paul is agreeing with a generalization that every Cretan who has ever lived is this way. It's very difficult to do that. You know, generalizations are generally not good. But he is saying it's true that a Cretan himself said this about Cretans. That's what he's saying. If I say, oh, people from Allen, they're awful, terrible. I'm like, well, that's pretty telling. I grew up there, and I, I know some people in Allen, and they're not really terrible, by the way. Therefore, so since they are so rough around the edges, this is how you should rebuke them. He says, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. You know, different people need different things when it comes to discipline. Your kids, each of them, need a different kind of discipline. And they respond well to different things. I hated when my parents were disappointed in me. And most of the time, not all the time, that was enough to steer me in the right direction. That was enough discipline for me. Okay, I got spanked like two or three times growing up. But if my dad said, I'm really disappointed in you, Man, I didn't like that. So that would steer me back in the right direction. Some people, Mrs. Kelly down here, I hear needed a little more of a hands-on approach. Yes? So different people respond to different things. Now, I think we both turned out all right. I may be biased. But each of those approaches that our parents took seem to pan out okay. So since these people are so rough and such liars, rebuke them sharply. Okay, they needed a little bit more of that hands-on approach. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Verse 14, he writes, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. These Jewish fables are mentioned in other places. We have at least three other mentions in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy 1.4, 1 Timothy 4.7, 2 Timothy 4.4. And these Jewish fables, what the Jews were doing, whether knowing it or not, was introducing an early form of Gnosticism to these early Christians. They would get them to start going along with some of these, what Paul calls Jewish fables, 
Um, and then that would lead into something down the road in history, which we know as Gnosticism. And it actually wouldn't be long from this point until full-fledged Gnosticism kind of took root. Um, and we know that John, in his epistles, was also writing to counter this new thought of Gnosticism. So it is important to point out that the error in these people, it was not openly opposed to the faith. As Peter said in his epistle, it seems like it's good, but there's been some things snuck in that are directly opposed, but they're not blatantly obvious. And that is what makes things like this so dangerous. When you have a facade of Christianity and you sneak in these things, which are directly opposed to the gospel and the message of Christ. So you think you're getting something Christian when in reality um, it is so not Christian. Um, that is the things that we need to watch out for. You know, it's easy to spot the little red demon with, a, with horns, pitchfork, and a pointy tail. The Bible tells us that Satan can present himself as an angel of light. That is when it's more difficult to ascertain what is what. The commandments of men, and these are referring to ascetic abstinence. Ascetic is characterized by or suggesting the practice of severe self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence. So this is different than just obeying God's commands. Obeying God's commands is a good thing, and it's, it's required of someone who has genuine faith in Christ. Okay? And, of course, we know that faith without works is dead, and that works come from a genuine faith. Uh, not that we are saved by works, but that works accompany our salvation. But these commandments of men are talking about this ascetic abstinence, this um, abstaining from indulging the flesh at all, a severe self-discipline. This is not helpful. These are commandments of men which are heaped upon the commandments of God. As Christians, we obey the commandments of God. If there's a, a tradition that you like to celebrate, that's a commandment of man, not a commandment of God. Okay, so we hold to certain things, but there are certain things that we place on ourselves, even today, um, I do as well, that are not directly from God. They're commandments of men. So we need to be careful not to get those switched up. The order of importance here is very important. Plenty of scripture warns us against a strict ascetic lifestyle and heaping up these regulations on us. I'm going to list these real quick for you if you want to look at them. We've got Titus 1.15, Mark 7.7-9, 7, 7 Colossians 2.16, and 20-23, 1 Timothy 4.3. Among others but that is all I'm going to list this morning. 
He says, men who turn from the truth. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Sin alone touches and defiles the soul. Matthew twenty three twenty six, Jesus says, Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. <laughs> He's saying that the inside has to be clean before the outside. If you're washing dishes and you just wash the outside of them, that's gross. Don't do that. Okay, the inside needs to be clean. It is the more important part. It's not the intrinsic nature of something that makes it unclean. It is the intention of the person using the object that can defile it. A tree, it's not unclean. A tree is not evil. If a man chops down a tree, carves it into a little statue, and worships that statue made from the tree, that's evil. The tree is not evil, but the intentions of the man to carve it into something to be worshipped is evil. Okay, It's not the intrinsic nature that makes something evil, but the intent of the person using it. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about whether they could eat meat um, being sold in the market at a discounted price. You'll find this in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, the catch was this discounted meat was offered to idols as sacrifices. They took the animals from that, cut them up, and sold them in the market at a bit of a discount. So the Corinthians asked Paul, hey, can I eat this meat that's been offered to idols? What does Paul write back to them? 1 Corinthians 10, 25 through 26. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience's sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. He goes on to say in verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Interesting concept here. It has to do with conscience and intent. Now, I'd like to go into this more, but we need to kind of keep going here this morning. Uh, the passage in 1 Corinthians talks also about conscience, which we just read in uh, verse 15 as well. So you can look at that on your own time if you'd like. But the takeaway there is simply that the mind defiles or purifies. Jesus cleanses our mind and makes us pure all at once and in time. Again, something like a crystal isn't bad, you know, in and of itself. But certain spiritual, and I'll put that in air quotes, groups have taken crystals and assigned certain unnatural characteristics to them, which defile them. Okay? So is it bad to have a crystal in your house? No? Question mark? What are you doing with the crystal? 
um, there are questions you have to ask yourself. What's your intent in putting that in your house? Um, Paul said, all things are lawful for me. Not all things are profitable. Do you need a crystal in your house? Chances are probably not. I don't know. Um, We have to look to the intent, to the heart. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So those whose mind and conscience are defiled, he mentioned in 15, profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Similar to what he said, they, they're talking about God, but they're denying his power. They put on this aura of spirituality, but they deny God's power. They profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So these types of people are, quote, disqualified for every good work. This is the same phrase that Paul used in 2 Timothy 3.17 when he wrote about Scripture equipping the man of God for every good work. He's talking about ministry, both personal and professional. So these types of people should not be in, in professional ministry. They should not be leading the church. I think that's fair enough. Titus 2, chapter 2, verse 1 But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good obedient to their own husband, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. A lot of good stuff right there. Back to verse one, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So in contrast to these idle talkers and deceivers, Titus is to speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Verse two, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, Sound in faith, in love, in patience. Older men seem to mellow out as they walk with the Lord for longer and longer. I know several, several of you uh, who are that way. And it's wonderful to hang out with you. And these kind of guys are just, just great to be around. They're encouraging all good things. The older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. What happens to older guys if they don't have Jesus? They get a little cranky, (laughs) to put it as nicely as I can. Um, So with Jesus uh, tempering your life, uh, they become sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. The older women likewise that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Love their husbands means to be fond of one's husband. You would hope that you'd be fond of your husband. 
you would hope. Um, this is not love agape. The root of this philandros is phileo. It's a fondness or a brotherly love. You like the guy. He's, he's good to be around. He's pleasant to you. To be fond of one's husband. Uh, same with to love their children. Uh, that is also from the root phileo, philotechnos, and it is meaning very much the same thing. You like your kids. Uh, they're not that much of a strain to you. Of course, they can be at times. But you love them. You're fond of them. You enjoy spending time with them. So this is what the older women are supposed to teach or encourage the younger women to do, to love their husbands, love their children, and then in five, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Discreet means self-controlled, of sound mind, and curbing one's desires and impulses. He says homemakers. Now, ladies, you don't have to go out and get a bigwig career to be, quote-unquote, successful. That's awesome if that's what you want to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But women and mothers are needed in the house. Um, I think we can all attest to the fact that mothers have a huge influence on their children. Um, In fact, we know that Timothy's mother and grandmother had a huge influence on him knowing the scriptures when he was an older guy. But there is something to be said about the women being at home with the children. No, children need a mother that's around them and that's fond of them. Obedient to their own husbands. He does not say women are obedient to men. That's not what he says. He says, you, woman, are obedient to your own husband, not anyone else's husband. Okay, this is not a, an issue of one sex is better than the other. Um, it's not saying that women are below men in value or in any other way. There is simply an order of things in the household as there is in the church. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.3 that the head of woman is man, the head of man is Christ, the head of Christ is God. That's simply the order of things. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, I mentioned this at the beginning, but this is the first instance of Paul mentioning walking what you talk. Let your actions match up with the Lord and Savior that you profess. You know, if I'm going out, getting drunk on the weekends, uh, making a fool of myself, and I come up here on Sunday mornings and tell you, hey, like, live right, do good, don't get drunk on the weekends. What does that say about me? It says that what I'm professing is not real to me. That's, that's what it effectively says. Um, and so we need to carry ourselves in a way that is going to show the outside world, hey, this is for real. This Jesus that they are professing, he is effective 
at changing lives and changing hearts. That's what we want. We want people to see us and realize that there is something different about us. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. That's what we're talking about here. Blasphemed is evil spoken of. Don't want evil spoken of us because of how you behave. Um, And especially in this context, we're talking about the woman in the home, obedient to their own husbands. You want to set that example for other women, um, that the word of God may not be blasphemed, that no reproach may be cast on the gospel. Even though, you know, sometimes we are inconsistent with how we carry out the gospel. Unless we are virtuous, blasphemy will come through us to the faith. Verse 6, he writes, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. I love that. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to save you. Again, he's reiterating that the way we live is so, so important in swaying someone else towards the faith. The way we live is so important. How we live should match up with what we profess. Verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned. I love that phrase. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. Now, that phrase, sound speech cannot be, that cannot be condemned, stood out to me when I was reading through this. Um, if our speech is rooted in Scripture, it cannot be condemned. That is a firm foundation for us to build our house. The Word of God. And... I want to know God's word so well that my daily speech is consistently and constantly informed by it. And I pray for that. And it's a wonderful thing when you meet someone who can say that. He probably won't say it, but he could. Now, this is not necessarily going around quoting the Bible to everyone I meet because that is annoying. But it is a seasoning. The scripture is seasoning the speech. I want my speech to be seasoned with the word. And I hope that you do too. Amen. Let's close today in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed.